Welcome to the Williamston Theatre Backstage Chat Podcast. The Williamston Theatre is Mid-Michigan's professional regional theatre, and our Backstage Chat Podcast is a way for you to dive deeper behind the scenes and get to know some of the artists at work. So come on, let's go backstage. I'm Emily Sutton-Smith, co-founder and executive director of the Williamston Theatre. In this episode, I get to chat with projections and media designer Allison Dobbins. Allison is a professor of integrated performance media design at Michigan State University. She is the project director of Theater Engine, research exploring the development and creation of interactive performance pieces such as Dance Engine, Shark the Musical, and Branch Out. Dobbins has won Pulsar and Wild Awards for media designs at Flint Repertory, Williamston Theatre, and Michigan State University. She is a media designer focusing on integrating elements of dance, media, music, theatre, medicine, and computer science in performance. Alison Dobbins, thank you so much for joining us on the Backstage Chat Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, You are a digital media performance designer, uh, meaning that you work in a relatively new medium in the theatrical production world. But how did you get into theater where are what's your origin story where do you uh, discover the magic of theater um so my origin story <laughs> it needs to be wolverine level um so i got into theater in a big way in college uh so there i was on the college campus and they were looking for all sorts of people to do pirates of penzance the gilbert oh, fun. players wanted to do pirates of penzance and i wanted to choreograph because i've always wanted to choreograph but they didn't have a director oh so the first thing that i really did in theater outside of you know playing chief sheep number three in some sort of elementary school production was to direct pirates of penzance and since my background was in marching band all the blocking was very marching band-esque. Oh my goodness, that's <laughs> a crazy entrance. <laughs> yes. And so once being introduced to the operetta world, um, it was kind of operetta all the time. So I did um, Patience, which is another Gilbert and Sullivan opera. Um, we made up our own. We did Melon, oh which was like these bits left over. Uh, and, you know, just getting involved in, in all the various ones uh, of, either being director or technical director or or playing a role. I very much liked being in the male chorus, leading, uh, playing a tenor, a tenor lead. Cool. Um, but after that, after that, I got into film. And so I was also doing a lot of film in college. Uh, this was the early, early, early days of digital, being able to put things on a computer. We had four gigabyte hard drives, some amazing <laughs> revolution. <laughs> and so you'd put you know, a tape worth of stuff on the computer, and then you'd have to take a tape worth of stuff off the computer because you wouldn't actually have enough space. And then after college, um, I was doing a fair amount of theater, but also film in Boston. So I was doing, got into a little bit more stage management. I did uh, some stage management the summer with the Ohio Light Opera, which is down in Worcester, Ohio. Oh, yeah. 
And um, then I took a little break from theater and did a lot of video work. And I went to teach video production at a college that's uh, located in Ohio, Stark State College of Technology. And I was working, I was doing a documentary on the dancer and her creative process. And she really wanted to bring the, the video that we were making onto stage because she was setting the dance on these three students. And she was like, well, they're really informed. It was a very site-specific dance, but they were performing it on stage. And it would be great to have the site be sort of a fourth dancer on stage. And so creating that work was so much fun because video can be kind of isolating. You just sort of, you know, you do your camera work, you go home and you are a little goblin, you sort of edit, edit, edit. And I very <laughs> much enjoy the challenges of that. But um, I like having a more, I missed the reaction and the partnership you have with an audience that happens in theater. And so this was right. one blending my two loves. And so I saw the job at Michigan State and I'm currently a professor at Michigan State uh, coming in here and to do basically projection design. And that's, uh, it was a new field at the time. Not that it's new to the world, just new to sort of education in the United States. And so just really getting into what is media on stage and what can you do with it? And so I've really been enjoying doing that for the past, I guess, 15 years. That's cool. What a neat route <laughs> to get into design, the design end of, of theater. And so you said um, projections and media design in theater. It's not super new. It's been around a while. It's, it's on the new side for us because yes. the technology has not necessarily been accessible to smaller theaters like us until recently. But, you know, what when you say projection, it's not just like, you know, the slide projectors of old where it's they had the carousel and it went ka-chink, ka-chink, ka-chink um, when your parents went on vacation in the 70s. Projection is a really wide term for a lot of different elements. So what are some of the elements in that media design that are utilized in theater? Well, great. So media design and theater is really any way you can get this time-based concept, so, so film in all of its many forms, onto stage. So the method of delivery, be it the audience cell phone, all the way up to a gigantic LED wall, it's all encompassed. So yes, we sometimes use the word projection, which would assume projector, but it's really any way you're getting a time-based medium, just like sound design. A sound designer might use a live vocalist, or they might use a mixer, or they might use the piano. They're still making sound. And so right. with uh, media design, it's any way you're getting the media on. And so I've used everything from projectors, slide projectors, as you said, film projectors, um, regular data projectors. I've used the audience cell phone. We've used computer monitors. We use television monitors, both old and new, you know, any way to kind of get a, a time-based image up there. That's so interesting that you use the audience cell phone because we're always telling audiences to turn their cell phones off. <laughs> so how does that work? <laughs> you keep them on? Yes. Yeah. So in my own research, I'm really interested in how... Uh, consumer media, like the interaction an audience normally has with their cell phone or with Netflix, et cetera, can shift how they might expect a theatrical interaction to go and how we could use that expectation to get them to come, become performers. So in my own work, like Dance Engine, they'll have their cell phone on and they're able to control the lights or they're able to control the speed of the song or they're able to choose the word the dancers respond to or they're able to control the dancers. And it's all this idea of using this little brick that we hold in our hands so often as a little safety blanket so that, you know, you're slowly becoming a performer, but it doesn't feel um, as scary as it might if a spotlight shines on you and it's like, now you get to perform. 
Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. So that I can totally see how that would work for dance. Mm-hmm. Does that work in the same way for theater? Well, we tried it for Shark the Musical, and unfortunately, research on that was cut short uh, due to COVID. Oh. So we oh no, we'd done Shark twice, and we'd found that yeah, it's a lot more challenging with a narrative. The audience doesn't want to step into a narrative because they're leap years behind the the performers who already know the song and the dance. And right. so we were really interested in, oh, how can we do consensus-based voting? Like, how could we do group voting? How could we have things where, um, you know, you're controlling other okay. objects that are coming in there? So we, we were about to experiment with group dynamics, really getting into group dynamics. And then, of course, COVID came and that morphed into a production called Crash Can that was a Zoom orchestra where the audience could move and make the music happen because of how they were moving and they each got assigned a different sound. So research is definitely affected by societal change. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's interesting. I could see in the kinds of um, theater uh, experiences and plays that are like a choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. type of play, I could totally see how that would, you know, if they had the app, they would be able to do the voting. I did. I saw a show. <laughs> this is a million years ago uh, on Broadway. Uh, it was the mystery of Edwin Drood, and there were like three or four different endings for that show. Probably actually more, but they the actors would come out into. They all had a different section that they would go to in the theater, and I was all the way up in the balcony, and there was some chorus person who was standing in front of us going, okay, who wants this person to be the bad guy? (laughs) And we all just raised our hands, but it would be like so much more accurate, and which could be deadly, because I'm sure (laughs) that those cast members would skew the numbers and the counting based on who had the best rehearsed Right ending, you know, <laughs> there are some actors who never get voted, so they probably don't have much practice <laughs> to do their bad guy ending. Um, that's fascinating. I could totally see how that would be something that could be utilized in a small space like ours, too, where you have that sort of uh, audience immersive kind of a, a theatrical storytelling experience where they determine the ending. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let me know when you're ready and we'll do Shark the Musical 3.0. We'll be ready. Sweet. (laughs) Shark the Musical. You heard it here first. So, and I mean, I think the first show that you worked on with us with regards to projections was Out of Orbit. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done Out of Orbit, 900 Miles, Mm -hmm. A Very Williamson Christmas, which was just a heck of a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so inventive, like the fact that you were able to utilize projections to um, not only help tell the story and give us a sense of space that were so, you know, individually tailored to Williamston and now in the Northville iteration of it are being tailored to Northville. Um, it, it was, I mean, like in, in one case in particular, I know you built something that allowed us to make a costume change <laughs> that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Yes. Um, in, in your, I mean, in our space, projections really open up a lot of doors for storytelling because our space is so small and our, our, we have no backstage and no fly space. We don't have a ton of scenery. So in something like uh, Very Williamson Christmas where we have to go to multiple locations or even like out of orbit mm-hmm. um, where you had 
the visuals behind the actors of what they were seeing when they were looking at stuff or when they were driving down a highway to give those clues to say, okay, they're sitting on a bench, but really they're in a car driving down the highway. It, it really does open a lot of doors for smaller theaters like us, um, especially in terms of the economy of it, because we can't afford those projectors now. And they run through the same computer software that sound design does often. Right. Um, but what do you, how do you work together with lighting design because we need light to be able to see the people on the stage but we sort of need darkness to be able to see the projections is that a challenge oh yes yes and so that's a challenge uh, a challenge of light beams and a challenge of money because if you get yeah. if you spend a lot of money you can get a projector that can be so bright that the lighting designer asks you to turn it down Ah. But until you're playing there, then it's a really uh, requires a really skilled lighting designer. And I've been lucky to always be working with really skilled lighting designers at Williamston who need to shape the space. But they also have to shape the projection space because sure. you don't want it to look like they're two separate worlds because then it's just somebody acting in front of a TV screen. It should be somebody right. in front of a set that happens to have media on it. And so you have to, the lighting designer can't abandon that space. And so um, right. really working with how those light beams happen. Um, the biggest challenge that we have, I think in Williamston is bounce. And I don't necessarily know that the audience would be aware of it, but light, even off a black floor bounces, obviously. And um, that that bounce will create a lot of ambient light, light that you're not really controlling where it's coming from. And that that will make the projection look even dimmer. And that's oh. not necessarily a problem when we're in the middle of a scene. After we know where we are, we don't necessarily need that constant reminder because the same thing would happen, you know, if you had a really intricate paint treatment, but you lit it somewhat flatly, you know, you wouldn't see the intricacy of the paint treatment anymore. Right. But normally when we add more light to a set element, we see it better, even if we don't see the details. But when you add right. more light to projections, you see it worse. So most of the shows that you mentioned, what we did was we would have a period of transition where the lighting would either go to a transition light or a dimmer light. And we would see, okay, this is the new place. We open up projection. Then we open up the lighting for the actor. And it's okay that the projection gets a little dimmer because we really need to see the actors in order to be able to hear them and feel what they're feeling. Right. And it, and so then it does, it really is part of the storytelling yeah. process and, and the sacrifice made once the actors come on, it doesn't inhibit the storytelling because that the location has been established <laughs> and all that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's that same trade-off. It's just like you might be, have the most beautiful sound effect playing, but if it's playing at top volume, you can't hear what anyone's saying. So you have totally. to bring it down. You have to let it recede into the background. It's a dance. And in that right. graphic moment, it needs to not be, it needs to be a chorus member and not front player. Right. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it, a chorus member. <laughs> so in doing this projection design and learning how to do the projection design, you must have studied a lot about lighting design too. Yes. And lighting design still is not an area where I feel comfortable in. It's funny how I can edit per pixel and right. know exactly how I want that explosion to happen. But then you give me an entire bank. I did in the college, of course, one of the things I did for one of the shows I was directing was also lighting design. And just, you know, lights coming from here and there and everywhere. And it's like, oh, 
I know there are things I'm missing, but it's, it is one of the essentials. I think uh, music composition and lighting design are the two things that I think are really, really useful to, if not have a strong understanding of, have a really deep appreciation of, because it helps so much as a projection designer to know how colors interact, how they mix, how we interpret colors, the psychology behind colors, um, to also understand, you know, angles and bounce and all that other stuff and, and the overall, how our eyes adjust to contrast. And then in terms of music composition to understand ideas of tempo and texture and harmony and disharmony and just how, how things come into as part of a blend, because it's very easy for media to be the loudest, whiniest child. It's very easy (laughs) for it to be constantly annoying. Just think about going to any restaurant and looking up and there's a TV and you're supposed to be making eyes with the person you're sitting with, but your eyes always go to that shiny thing or your phone or, you know, we're just very programmed to see media and to be very used to it. And so when you're playing with that very noisy, shiny, sparkly toy, uh, even if it's dim because of what the lighting is doing, you just have to know, okay, I, I'm the bright red ruby slipper on stage. I have to be very deliberate about when I'm centered and very deliberate about when I'm not centered. Oh, that's so interesting. I love the way that you talked about music too. I hadn't even thought about coordinating that storytelling with the music as well because so often those cues are happening at the same time oh yeah definitely and even and just thinking about the the whole the theatrical moment as as a score I find is very useful you just you know it's it's somewhat as if you were looking for the acting beats but you're not looking for them from any particular point of view you're just kind of seeing the unit changes and you're seeing like what's the purpose here? Is this a now allowed or is this a place where the score would go and just Uh off, you know? And so, so kind of, um, I find myself reading scripts as if they were scores and interesting. What instrument is the media? That's so cool. I hadn't even thought about that. It totally makes sense though. When you explain (laughs) it. So in your travels, um, have you had favorite, moments hmm I really I think there were two shows that I've done recently that I really really enjoyed um one of them was the uh very Williamson Christmas and I really enjoyed that one because it got it got back to my special effects roots so adding oh cool oh damages that didn't have snow and then you know adding street signs damages that didn't have it adding trees so we could cover up street signs it was just really um it was just a great little piece where there were a lot of little small problems for me to solve, but overall, like you're trying to put this whole hallmark kind of um, uh, sort of style onto it, having a very stylistic approach. That was a lot of fun. That was very challenging in a very, very fun way. And then another piece that I did recently um, was Wrong River. And I did it two years ago up at uh, Flint at the Flint Repertory Theater. And that one dealt with the Flint water crisis. And so the water was very symbolic and rust was very symbolic. And so it was really doing sort of a magical realism approach, which I love to do with media because media is so absurd. (laughs) I mean, it's so absurd to have like this phone that you're carrying that connects you to the world and where you can watch video on it. But it's a phone and it's not connected to anything. It would be like a tree with no roots. And so I just right. love the absurdity. Like media is so absurd. And so being able to, and I know magical realism isn't necessarily absurd, but it's absurd adjacent. And so I really like to be able to delve into that. That's so cool. And did you find when you, going back to Williamson Christmas, very Williamson Christmas now, which is now very Northville Christmas. <laughs> yes. 
morphing the design because they have a different setup over there. We had the angled screens and they've got a flat one. We have two projectors. I don't know. Did we use three or did no, we use two? Use two. We just used two. And they only have one, right? Yeah. So how much does that change the design? So it changes it quite a bit in terms of uh, the details. So the overall, the the style had already, I'd already been through the style once. So it's pretty easy to rediscover your style again. But uh, for instance, with the Williamston show, I was doing a lot of things going, I was emphasizing the angles. So I'd find shots of the city where, you know, they're looking down a street and looking down the other street. So I'm creating this false horizon, but mm. flip that to, to flat. Um, I was at first, I was like, well, I'll try flat images, but the flat images made it look, um, they kind of collapsed the stage space. And because it was above the actors, it kind of made it look like impending doom. Like there's no way out. <laughs> this building is right here lurking. And so I still needed, but it couldn't be as steep as the Williamson angle because there was no, um, it just, the, it, it was a false perspective that wasn't supported scenically. And so I ended up doing a lot of lens manipulation of the photos so that I could get the just right perspective. So you have space. So these characters aren't in a horror film. They're not trapped in a basement. Instead, you know, there's opportunity because, you know, perspective gives us opportunity for growth or reflection. And so they had that, but not to such an extent that they were lost in the past or only looking for the future. So, so that was some play, but. That's so cool. The minutiae that you dive into with each individual image. Yes. It's, it's like it's detective work. I would say anybody who likes a good cozy mystery might really like media design because mm -hmm. you're kind of going in and you're like, well, what does that lamppost mean? Or what would a conifer right here do to this image? And, you know, you're looking at all the things, um, you know, contrast levels, adjustment, brightness, color, position, size, and everything, you know, it's all this puzzle piece and all of them have different meaning and you can change that meaning subtly by just kind of adding and subtracting and playing around with. And, you know, and I refer to it as a mystery because usually you have a destination, but you're also playing like a chef, you know, you're like, well, what would it taste like if I threw a nutmeg into this cheesecake? And it can either be great or horrible, but you know, you're going to experiment and find something out while you're doing it. Man, if I was studying this, I would totally want you as a professor. You make it so fascinating. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell you're passionate about it. It's awesome. I, I think your students are very, very lucky. Where do you see this particular medium going in the future? Because technology shifts so quickly, and this is such a technological-based design component. How do you see it evolving in the next, I don't know, five to ten years? Well, I see some work. Um, a lot of my colleagues, not necessarily at Michigan State, but in other universities that I've been talking to at conferences and stuff, are shifting into VR, so virtual reality performance, and looking wow. at. Um, and the reason I'm having those conversations with them is in VR, the audience is the performer. So you're creating narrative environments. Well, and some people are creating narrative stories, but generally speaking, you create a world and the audience chooses how to work through it. Maybe there's actor avatars in places. And that's a really interesting way because then the media does become story, but it's it's a story where you don't know what story the audience is picking up. Like you're just laying it down. You don't know what they're picking up. Um, and I love that ambiguity. I think that's fantastic. There have been some people who've been playing with AR, um, a little bit more in concert venues than in theater, but some in theater too. And this is, again, using the audience cell phone so that the media experience is is to augment the overall performance and only if you see the performance through your cell phone. But there's been a fair amount of pushback to that because it 
it gets rid of that one communal audience as society and actors representing the individual. Like it gets rid of that relationship because mm. now it puts the audience as a bunch of individuals again, because they're each seeing their own view. So I think, I think if they'll be continuing to be more media, they'll continue to play. But one of the things that I'm absolutely fascinated with is that as all these branches of media and different ways of storytelling split off, so, you know, film split off a long time ago and you have video games and possibly it's virtual reality, theater remains. And I love it because there's something that's so visceral about physically being in the same space, breathing the same air and having one moment of your time be the same moment of the time of the person on stage. And so I see as the technology changes, we might deliver the media differently, but I don't necessarily know that it will do any difference in terms of the shaping. Now, people are writing more filmic scripts. You know, a script will now have 27 scenes in the first act. Right. A very Williamson Christmas did. (laughs) (laughs) And sorry, those, those those sorts of possibilities are capable with with you know media being part of it but um and i'm sure that that will continue but i don't actually know that the 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 details of the technology i don't know that the audience will be aware of the differences it'll probably just be a lot cheaper to get those brighter projectors so that maybe lighting will now be done by projection design or you know or um maybe you know we'll have uh led walls will be so cheap that you'll just build a flat out of leds rather than out of wood i don't know wow that would be cool wouldn't that be neat yeah these are things I dream about. <laughs> well, and, you know, technology does move quickly and yes. prices come down. And so it does make it more accessible. But I love the fact that you do identify that it's still the same journey for the audience. Or, you know, you can have the opinion, which I share with you, that it should be the yeah. same journey and that breaking us up into individuals who could just as well be sitting on our couches is not necessarily um, creating the same kind of experience that theater is really good at and serves our medium of live storytelling best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a here's here's the meaning of what we do in the greater scheme of humanity is we connect people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that connection I think is, is essential to the survival of live theater yeah. as more and more it is threatened for economic reasons and for marketplace reasons and, um, and all that, all that kind of thing as, as we, you know, s- struggle to recover from the pandemic. I think what people are, what I'm seeing as they leave the theater after a show is that they do value the experience mm-hmm. of that communal storytelling journey. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've d- dived into philosophical things. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me because I just think it's so fascinating to learn about all of the minutiae of all of these different elements that contribute to this one moment that people experience when they come see a show, they have no idea all this stuff that goes into it. So I, I, I have enjoyed learning more about projections than I knew. Well, thank you for calling. It was wonderful to talk to you. Williamston Theatre audiences have seen Allison's work on our stage in Out of Orbit, 
900 Miles to International Falls, and A Fairy Williamston Christmas. Tune in to our next episode when I chat with scenic designer Jennifer Mazeloff. Coming up on stage at the Williamston Theatre is the romantic comedy Maytag Virgin by Audrey Cephaly, running from February 1st through March 10th, 2024. For more information on the entire 2023-2024 season of productions, check out our website at williamstontheatre.org. See you soon at the Williamston Theatre.